0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
1: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
0: This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people.
1: The producers of this
2: podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging.
0: We're currently at the address of 24th Street, Kewdale. Adam, I have a search warrant uh, in regards to Section 42 of the Criminal Investigation Act 2007 here to execute on your premises. Uh, we're looking for a number of things, forensic samples inclusive of biological matter, mobile phones belonging to uh, Frank La Rosa and Kim LaRosa. Rosa. Adam McHale was 23 years old when this search warrant was executed on his home. In relation to the murders of Kim and Frank LaRosa. Just a couple more questions, mate. What's your level of education? Uh, I have a a course after high school. Mm -hmm.
2: Did did you complete year 12? Did you? And you you understand English very well, do you? Yes, yes.
0: Adam and his father, Frank, were convicted of the murders in 2011. And headlines around the country referred to the crime as the La Rosa drug dealer murders. The story was, of course, much more complicated than that. For Frank La Rosa's long-suffering daughter, Lisa, it was the end of the most profound and complicated relationship in her life. And she joins us today to talk about surviving her dad. We begin by hearing about Lisa's childhood With Frank.
2: My dad immigrated to Australia when he was three. He is of an Italian background, so he was born in Calabria. And my mum is English, and she was born in Tubbridge Wells in Kent. So they both came to Australia. My mum was only a teenager, my dad was very young, and they met when my mum first arrived here in Australia back in the 60s. Saying that your dad was from Calabria and we
0: know that Calabria has links to organised crime internationally, was his family involved in that back home?
2: No. So my Italian grandparents were straight as arrows. They were very dutiful, stayed within the rules of society and were wonderful people. My father just seemed to stray from that as he got older. He was a Vietnam vet. And I guess whatever he saw there, and this is only my, you know, it's only what I think, but I think he saw a lot of horror and atrocity and probably delivered a lot of horror and atrocity and it changed him.
0: Yeah, it's a strange situation, yeah, to go away and be part of this sanctioned violence and I, I can't imagine what it does to your brain.
2: Yeah, and, and I I also, along with that, that was quite an adventurous highly spirited type of person too. So, you know, I think all of those combinations of things, he, he needed a lot of stimulation and so forth to, I don't know, need to get by in life, I guess.
0: The other thing veterans talk about is how, frankly, boring they find home society when they get back and how they do need that, they need something, they need stimulus when they get back. So what did he do when he got home?
2: Oh, he, Well, he's always been a worker, so he was always a hard worker. He was a grano worker. He ran that uh, mechanic, so he was interested in cars and things like that. But his main, during my lifetime, his main focus was concreting. So he was a grano worker, a builder, ran his own businesses and made lots of money. Money was a big focus for Dad. He um, made his fortune, lost his fortune, made his fortune, lost his fortune many times.
0: When did he move into crime and what sort of criminal enterprises did he move into?
2: Well, I would say he's probably had his finger in a lot of pies for many years. But for me to actually be aware of it was during my childhood when I was growing up. Um, he had marijuana plants growing in the backyard that we used to help him harvest and pick shade leaves and things like that. But unbeknownst to us what it was, he never sort of said that this was, you know, marijuana or cannabis. I actually found that out off the news one night.
0: You found out about his plants
2: or did you see plants and think, hey? I saw (laughs) plants, yeah, that's exactly right. I saw it on the news and I thought, oh, my God, this (laughs) No, this is, this is marijuana. They're the plants we have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was I was under 10 at that time, you know. So he, obviously he he was dabbling way back then. You know, we, we were always, well, more so as I got older, we were always sort of second in his uh, thought process. He always had an agenda of what he wanted to achieve. And uh, my mum and dad separated when I was 10 and divorced. So we didn't live with him four times from when I was 10. But those early years were um, amazing and then things just got worse from that.
0: When you say the early years were amazing, men like your dad, there is often a bright side that is exciting, fun. Dad's always up to something. And for little kids who don't quite understand that it's marijuana, for example, or whatever, They can be quite magical, guys like your dad, can't they? Mm -hmm.
2: Well, dad and I were always very close and up until my siblings were born, you know, he referred to me as baby and uh, he was my hero and I absolutely adored him. He taught me how to ride a bike, how to tell the time. Yeah, he, he was a great father. We were very family orientated. I still had my grandparents and my aunties and You know, everything back in those days through my lens was perfect.
0: And so did it all change when you realised things like, oh my God, they're marijuana plants and it sounds like it all happened
2: maybe roughly the same kind of time? Well, it was the fact that they came and raided our home in Greenwood and mum had had enough by then and she left. So, you know, she didn't want to be put through the humiliation and she left him and we moved out and yeah so after that they ended up divorcing and they escalated his business pursuits. Things started going pear-shaped for me in early childhood with dad you know I found out things in ways that I couldn't unsee, unfeel, unthink. One New Year's Eve When I was under 10, we went to a party across the road. I I went with him, so he allowed me to go with him. Um, Everybody else had gone to bed. We came back, but rather we lived in a three-storey home. So rather than go upstairs and wake everybody, we went down to to the bedroom downstairs and there were a couple of single beds. But he climbed into one and I climbed into the other and called me over to his bed, and that just scared the hell out of me. I said, ''What are you doing, Dad?'' He said, come here, and I said, no, and uh, he said, come here, and I said, no, Dad. I said, you're scaring me. I didn't go, but I laid awake for the rest of the night and got out of there as soon as I could, you know, so uh, that changed my relationship with my dad very early and I carried that around for a long time and not long before joining the Air Force I took him to task on and I asked him about it and he actually didn't even remember it. So he he apologised and I accepted his apology. He said he'd been drinking a lot and uh, he hadn't remembered the incident but he was deeply sorry that I, he'd scared me like that. But, yeah, potentially it could have gone terrible and uh, I wouldn't allow it to happen but I was very scared and he scared me. That's huge.
0: For a little girl, so you were under 10... You just knew, and as much as you adored him, worshipped him, he was your hero, you just knew that situation was different, it was wrong, he was not himself.
2: Yeah, it, it felt scary and that changed how I viewed him from that moment on.
0: How awful. Oh, I would say maybe worse that he di- said he didn't remember it. How did that feel when he said he didn't remember something like that?
2: Uh, yeah, well, it it was a little bit. Um, dumbfounding or confounding because uh, I'd carried it for quite a few years. It affected my life and the way I interacted with people and um, how I saw the world for a long time before I brought it to him and then for him to sort of say, you know, he didn't remember it meant almost that he wasn't admitting to it, he wasn't denying it, but at least... He validated that it occurred and that he was sorry and I could move on from that, but it never it never really repaired our relationship. No, I don't know how, how it could. He didn't like me saying no. He didn't like me resisting and as I got older I was able to do that. In the younger years I wasn't able to do that. He'd only have to, you know... Look at me a certain way, and and you did what you were told, or you or you pop a, a smack in the mouth. That's just how we dealt with things. He during our teenage years, he ran a disco called Bad Jellies, which was very popular before blue light discos happened. So lots of underage teenagers uh, at a warehouse in in um, Wangara, and we'd all go there. It was fantastic. Lots of music, disco. You know. But I did something to upset him one night. Said no to him, and he just drew his fist back and punched me straight in the face. He had a, you know, big signet ring on, and yeah, I had I had the indentation in my in my forehead for a long time. Yeah, he could be quite brutal.
0: When you started living separately, did you see him
2: regularly? Well, I, I moved out of home. When I was 16, and then I joined the Air Force at 18. I saw him periodically in that time. I wasn't really uh, aware of what he was doing. As far as I was concerned, he was a grano worker, you know, making, building slabs and making homes and that sort of thing. I really didn't have any real concept about what he was doing. I, I must have been naive. It confounds me now that I didn't know. I moved out of home. I escaped, I guess, when I joined the Air Force. I wasn't getting married, wasn't having kids. I was going to be a career woman and, you know, just leave that all behind me. I hadn't been speaking to my dad prior to leaving for some time, and I, but I knew he didn't want me to join the Air Force and I knew he didn't want me to go, but he did actually drive me to Pierce uh, Air Force Base that morning. In the mid-'90s, my husband and I, both left the Air Force and came home to Perth. So that's where we discharged at RAF Base Pierce. And it was tight. Times were tight. Times were tough. We had two little children by then. And he had a home that he'd bought next door to my nonna in, in Balkata. And uh, we moved into there. And it was around that time that things started to become clear when he'd have uh, packages sent to my address. He'd turn up at all different times of the night and then just go up to the shed or, you know, and and that sort of then piqued my interest. He had a uh, workshop in Osborne Park which he had a front, I guess, you could call it a front for doing cars, making cars, uh, fixing cars up, panel beating and engines and stuff. So from what I can gather, looking back on it, that would have been his little sort of office. What was he up to, really? Uh, Well, he was wheeling and dealing in narcotics, you know, heroin and amphetamines and all these things. And uh, I wasn't totally aware of that because he didn't he didn't do it in front of me but I ended up getting sort of mixed up in it all because he'd asked me to go and deposit money into banks and uh, I guess at the time I wasn't aware that it was money laundering but it soon became clear when they raided my house and uh, rocked up after a visit. So a package arrived at my house I didn't know it was coming until the day before and he said, don't open it, just, you know, take possession of it. Anyway, it turns out it was heroin and I'd flushed it down the toilet. Um, and back in the mid-90s, it was like 80 grand's worth of drugs that i just flushed down the toilet and he wasn't happy about that. Don't you worry. So I uh, that night... He just ranted and raved at me. I saw the blacks of his eyes. So my dad had beautiful brown eyes, little round chimpanzee eyes, I would call them, but they went black. And I saw the devil in him that night. He he threatened to kill me because I'd actually, you know, cost him a lot of money. But the very next day uh, my house was raided and had I not have disposed of those drugs, I would have been sharing a cell with him. So he'd been on a police chase around Perth because they had intercepted parcels in the mail. He'd been caught and he was in remand, I'd say, in one of the prisons. I went to see him and when I came back, they were at my house, there was half a dozen detective vehicles on my lawn and they were going through absolutely everything. And uh, one of the detectives had said to me, you'd better make arrangements for your children, you're not coming home tonight and it was yeah it was it was awful so I went to the uh, the headquarters in Perth and I was interrogated till all hours of the morning about all this money laundering that had been going on and um, they wanted to know what I knew and I told them what I knew and they finally did let me go but I ended up having a breakdown that next day because it's not what I'm used to I, I don't You know, my mindset is not criminal. My daughter was, she was three at the time. I had a baby. She found me curled up in the fetal position on the kitchen floor and she ran next door to my nonna and said, you know, something's wrong with mummy. And she raced over and she scooped me up in her arms and, you know, comforted me, um and told me that I needed to be strong for my children. and But I ended up in Ward 2K at Royal Perth for about 12 weeks in a psychiatric ward because I simply had a breakdown. Not having any control over that, you know, it was his place, so he thought he could do what whatever he wanted, you know, and he did. And use you, yeah. Yeah. Flushing is his drugs, that made him very cross, and he did threaten to kill me. You know, I had no doubt he meant every word of it. And uh, that's, I think, what pretty much sent me over the edge and sent me into hospital. How awful. What an awful feeling. It was. Um, From that point, my husband, because we'd just started a business too, so he'd gone guarantor for an electrical business and we just my my husband pulled me out of there and we up stakes and moved interstate. He said, You're not staying here and I went kicking and screaming. But um I didn't return. I haven't been back to Perth to live. Since the nineties. Since the nineties, yeah.
0: Were you afraid? I mean, you've flushed $80,000 worth of gear down the toilet and that's in the 90s, so that I don't know what that would be worth now. The equivalent would be, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not a million dollars. And
2: absolutely no idea of the impact of what that would have done, you know. I mean, those drugs, he would have had to have answered to somebody for those drugs. Yeah. So, And I had no idea of that, you know. All I knew was I didn't want them at my house.
0: Yeah. And I suppose you didn't, when you say you told the police everything you know, you didn't know a lot, right?
2: No, I didn't. Only my involvement. And that was, you know, taking money to the bank in $5,000 lots because apparently there were no questions asked if you were, you know, depositing $5,000. So we were going round to different, him and his, I think it was his third wife, Sarah uh, and I were going round to banks. Depositing money, making dirty money clean, or something like that. I arrived in Tassie very uh, broken, mentally unwell, not in a good place. Frightened of my own shadow. Frightened he might send somebody here to do it, and I had no doubt at that time that he would. But eventually, he uh, he was he was jailed for that particular incident of you know, money laundering and, and importing narcotics, heroin and and uh, drugs into Australia. And he, I think he got 12 years. I can't remember exactly how many years he stayed in, but I went to visit him in jail. <gasps> oh, my God. What happened? Well, I knew I had to visit him so that I could face him and move on. If I didn't, I'd li- be living in fear all the time. So I went there and he was in his prison greens and, you know, he just stared through me a lot of the time and was still very intimidating. And uh, I just said to him, because he, he told me I had to pay that money back and I said, well, good luck with that. You can't get blood from a stone and uh, I won't be paying it back and you have no idea what you have just put me through and you don't seem to care. So that was it, and we didn't speak for many years after that. I left him there, and I felt quite good that I had left him there. Uh, He was where he needed to be, and luckily I wasn't sharing a cell with him.
0: What about other family members? I mean, God, we think about things that, you know, drive a wedge through families.
2: My mum was well and truly out of the scene, so my dad was married four times. I only had three children to my mum, so I have a brother and a sister. And my brother had a fair bit to do with my dad, but my sister was quite estranged. She had a lot of wisdom beyond her years. She's younger than me, but she had a lot of wisdom beyond her years and she knew to steer clear.
0: She didn't have those early years with him, though. You loved him dearly in your formative years.
2: That's heartbreaking, literally. He broke your heart. Yeah, and she she will tell you that today that she didn't have that that same connection. And your brother, how did he react? It's hard. To, I can't really answer for him. He and my dad also had their own issues. Um, there were a couple of times where my father assaulted him. It broke my grandfather's heart. I'm sure he because he died not long after I moved to Tasmania in '96. So he he died that same year. I knew when I left Perth that that would be the last time I'd see my grandfather. He wasn't well, but he was ashamed of my father. My nonna thought the sun and rose and set with my, my dad. He was her baby boy. You know, he could do no wrong no matter what he did. But my grandfather was quite stoic and he he was embarrassed. And he did bring shame to the family many times. And I, I believe my my grandfather died with a broken heart. Um, my father was in jail when he died and wasn't allowed to attend the funeral either. So dad had some issues around that that I learned much later. But, yeah, things were really difficult and strange between him and his parents Um, My dad looked after his sisters. He had two sisters. Um, He was a good big brother. My dad was very charismatic and enigmatic and resourceful and there was nothing he couldn't do or achieve even in prison, you know. like He loved his sisters, he loved his mother, and and I'm sure he loved us too. Uh, He just had really strange ways of, of showing it.
0: So he was released from prison, I guess, What, early
2: 2000s? Yeah, uh, I think he might have served six or seven years of that 12-year sentence.
0: And then what? Did he sort of get back to to dealing, do you think?
2: Oh, yeah, I, I don't think he ever stopped. But we didn't have much of a relationship after that because of the threats and things, and it wasn't until my grandmother died and that was, you know, it must have been early 2000s when my grandmother, my nonna, died. And uh, I saw him at the funeral and, I mean, he was a broken man then because he just adored his mum. And we reconnected, but by then it was always at an arm's length and I'd certainly grown up and matured since then and got a lot more uh, life skills and and had a, a lot more healing going on. In the meantime... So he couldn't bend me like he used to, he couldn't intimidate me like he used to and uh, our relationship was on my terms. He did come and visit me a few times here in Tassie. We were on the mend and uh, in the last couple of visits he did say that he was cleaning up his act and he'd been to Vietnam a few times and he'd met a lady there and he ended up marrying that lady and uh, he was getting out. That was that was his, you know, the last sort of interactions that I had with him. He was amassing his wealth so he could just go and retire somewhere. It's At one point early in the piece he'd said to me, you know, if, if something happens to me, are you going to be able to come and, and help me, look after me? And I actually did promise him I would do that. But uh, in the end he didn't need that because he... Ended up marrying again, wife number four, I think, her name was Kim.
0: If you'd like to talk to someone about abuse that's taken place in your life, no matter how long ago it happened, your GP is always a good place to start. If that's not going to work for you, you can contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or via their website, 1800respect.org.au. Or you can call Lifeline's 24-hour phone counselling service on 13 11 14.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little.
0: your dad, Frank, and his wife, Kim, were missing?
2: Um, Yeah, I do, actually. It was uh, very strange. I received a... I was sitting in the lounge room um, watching TV one evening and I had a phone call from my auntie, my dad's youngest sister, and she said to me, oh, have you heard from your dad? And I said, no, not not in a few weeks. The last time he rang me, we were you know, talking about toe socks and um, I couldn't wait for him to get off because there's a couple of hours' time difference and it was late at our end so, you know, I just waiting for him to get off the phone. And I said, no, I haven't I haven't heard from him. She said, oh, okay then, um, yeah, all right, and hung up. And I turned to my husband and I said, oh, that was a really, really weird phone call. I said, uh, my auntie doesn't ring me. And she's wanting to know, have I heard from dad? I said, something's going on. I don't know what, but anyway, I think it was the next day she rang me back and she said that she'd reported him missing because uh, they'd gone to visit and there was rotting meat on the on the bench and um, things were left as if they were coming back, but they hadn't been seen. So it looked
0: like they'd left either in a hurry or left unexpectedly or, yeah.
2: Yeah so I ended up getting in touch with the Australian Federal Police and uh, they said they believed that he had absconded because he was on charges and he was due to face court and I just thought that was really strange and I said to them back then I said uh, no I don't think so I said uh, my dad has never turned tail and run that's not how he does things, he will stand and he will fight till the death. Whether he's right or wrong, he will not turn tail and run. One of his favourite sayings was, do the crime, be prepared to do the time. And that was one of his mottos, he lived by that. So he wasn't afraid of going to jail. What were the charges in relation to? Um, they were in char- related to drugs, but uh, he was saying that they were not his. He actually... Had taken them from for someone else, now another family member who's now rotting in a prison over in Italy. Do you
0: feel as though police pursued the matter as a missing persons matter, given that they thought at the, initially they were saying to you, "Oh, he's absconded."
2: Yeah, no, I don't think so. I actually had this really sick feeling after that. Yeah, whoever did this didn't want him found. I didn't think he was coming back, even back then. The last time he came to visit me and Tad, he was very uneasy and he was looking over his shoulder. He knew something was going on. I'd never seen him like that. He actually looked a little frightened. So uh, Dad was missing for seven months. It was the longest seven months of my life. And it's a horrible feeling to know that they're out there somewhere but you don't know where they are. My life was in limbo. I, from Tassie, would ring them on a daily basis, trying to uh, prompt them to keep looking because I didn't think he was on the run. I, I, I honestly thought that something had happened to him, and whatever had happened to him, he was no longer alive. I, that was that. I honestly felt that. Did they
0: have any signs of life? Did they have any use of bank accounts or? mobile phones or any of those
2: things? Well, it's interesting because all of those things were quite sort of in their infancy in being able to track. Because this is 2008 we're talking about, 2009? Yeah, 2008. So he went missing in June 2008 and was found in January 2009 on the 13th of both days. They managed to find Dad through new diagnostics, through his TomTom through the alarm system in the factory that he was at. They were able to pinpoint through cell towers on his phone and they were able to put together basically what had happened. He was found three metres deep in a hole with gunshot wounds, him and his wife. The police found him. They'd searched. He had a number of properties but, because of Dad's criminal activity, nothing—he had nothing in his name. He used to put any assets he had into other people's names, and he certainly didn't put them into my name because I, I couldn't be trusted. I flushed his drugs down the toilet, so he didn't. <laughs> I should have thought so. Yeah, yeah. So he was, you know. So his so-called friends, he'd he'd put assets into their name, like his house um he had a a farm a goat farm and i'm pretty sure that was in his so-called best mate's name he had cars all these sorts of things that possibly would have been viewed by police as proceeds of crime so he didn't he didn't own anything but um he was found on his goat farm that he had that was in his so-called best mate's name. So it could also be seen as motive if,
0: you know, there are properties that are in other people's names but that your dad has paid for. I mean, those sorts of things can become contentious no matter how close the friendship, right?
2: Well, this is true and I, and I believe, I mean, there was, a, there was a 10-week court case but I believe over and above all of that, I honestly believe the motive for his death was greed, and he was worth more dead than alive because once once he was dead, nobody could contend the property that this other person had wasn't his. He's dead, so nobody can say anything. So was the
0: property, the goat farm, whose name was it in? Was it in the name of the two men who
2: were charged with your dad's death? No, no. Another party, wow. Mm-hmm. So he, he had it in his so-called mate, which, you know, was meant to be a lifelong friend. I'd never met this man. So he was murdered by a father and son over some money. This is what they believed. Dad had loaned the son some money to get married and they didn't want to pay the loan out, so they bumped him off. So they are Frank uh, McHale is the father.
0: Yeah. And Adam is the son. Yeah. Were they supposedly lifelong friends as well?
2: No, no. So Adam, the son, used to do a lot of tech work for Dad, computer tech work, fixing computers. That was the pretense that lured Dad to the workshop where he was murdered, which was actually owned by his so-called best mate. Was there suggestion
0: that your dad charge exorbitant interest on loans that he gave to people?
2: Yes, and mm. I have no doubt that that would have been the case. Dad didn't give anything to anybody for nothing, but I, I don't know that that would have been a big enough motive to kill somebody, but, you know, that, that's what they contend and that's the, that was what they proved in court. All the spiders come out from the rocks, you know, and they all creeped away. When Dad went, his house was sold. The farm was sold a fortnight after he went missing and then he was murdered and then missing, you know, and, and I, I really think that they thought he'd never be found. So a number of parties benefited from your father's demise.
0: Yeah. I mean, even though that would have come all come out in the murder trial, there's not much that can be said or done or proven or it just is what it is?
2: No. Yeah, it is what it is. And, I mean, for me, you know, if you've never had it, you've never missed it. So, you know, but that's not the point. It's not the point. I mean, he had boats, he had cars and everything. that It was just all taken. In the
0: court, did they talk about how much of that was proceeds of
2: crime? No, I don't think so because, I mean, this is my theory. That's not the theory they went with. They went with the theory that Frank and Adam owed Dad money and to avoid paying that bill, they killed him. He still had a Vietnam pension that was coming in. He still worked. So there was legitimate money coming in and those assets were frozen but... As for his house, so he had quite a, an, I mean, back in the mid-90s, his house was, you know, 500 odd 1000 dollars. Well, it, it would be worth a lot more now, and he built that. He had exotic cars and, as I say, a, a parcel of land out at Chittering. I know he told me that they were his, but they weren't in his name and for the reason that, yeah because of proceeds of crime. If he had any of that, they would have just confiscated it.
0: He was very canny with his money. He made national headlines in 2002 after being allowed to claim a $220,000 tax deduction for money stolen during a drug deal. He successfully argued that as he made a living dealing drugs, he was entitled to claim the deduction because the money was stolen during a deal directly linked with his business.
2: Yeah. He was a very smart guy, your dad. He was, he was a genius, actually. Yeah. Just in all the wrong areas. Yes. The taxation department had to change the laws because of my dad.
0: But as you say, towards the end of his life, he was looking over his shoulder. So mm-hmm.
2: I think he was too smart for his own good. That's it, right? And, you know, also he was of the old school, you know, honour among thieves, but the young and up and coming yeah. Yeah. Things were changing. There was a shift.
0: I keep hearing that. I keep hearing that from blokes who'd say been to jail, you know, a couple of times over the decades saying, oh, there was a real shift. You know, when I first started going to jail, there were the rules and everyone lived by them. But then over the years, that changed. Yeah. And they blame drugs, actually. They blame the drug trade. So, mm. and uh, yeah, your dad definitely
2: didn't move with the times. Yeah. No. He gambled and he lost. He did the crimes, he did the times, he took risks and he knew what the risks were and he still dabbled, he still did what he did. He lived his life in the fast lane. He wouldn't have lived it any other way and he also used to say he was here for a good time, not a long time. You know, as much as He and I didn't speak for years on end. I knew that I could pick up the phone and call my father at any time, any moment in the day, and he would be right there. I knew that. So, you know, he was a big cornerstone in my life and he's just gone. That was the conflicting, you know, going through the trial for 10 weeks and and seeing the evidence and and knowing what he was up to and and what he had done. I had very conflicting emotions because I I couldn't condone what he was doing, but I also had the feelings of, of a daughter that's suffered great loss and, and in, in horrific ways. Uh, so it was very, it was very conflicting. I, I didn't know how to feel at the time. The relationships fractured. My mum and I have had a very tumultuous relationship all of our life but we're probably closer now than we've ever been which is really lovely and that's only been since my dad's death. My sister the same so we weren't close growing up but through dad's death we've managed to, I don't know, mend bridges I guess. For my brother, he's still fighting his own battles over that. There's a lot of grief and loss there that he's dealing with and uh, projecting that out in ways towards us that isn't very kind or or nice but I can't change that. There's always doubt and suspicions throughout the family so you know you, you start to doubt even family it's fractured families although I speak to my aunties I love I love my family still this is the quandary I find myself in as much as you know they hurt you. They're still your blood. They're still your family. But as I say, lots of things went missing. I don't know. It's it's very hard to not have suspicions. You know, was it a planned hit?
0: Yeah, and your dad just was such a huge presence in everybody's lives that it's hard not to let him continue to be. I guess because you've written a book called Collateral Damage. It's a memoir about your life, but obviously your life through the lens of your life with your dad. Yeah. And, I mean, that the title says it all, doesn't it? The, the title says that, yeah, your collateral damage in his living, his life, his way, as you said earlier, he was selfish. He thought about himself and then, I guess, family members just had to deal with
2: the fallout. Yeah. So... With him, it wasn't just us that were collateral damage. With the two that went to prison over his death, Adam had a young child. You know, she'd just been born. The old man, the father, had a daughter also. You know, those children are left without a father. Yeah, Kim's got a family in Vietnam. Kim's got a family, yeah. And she was collateral damage because she had nothing to do with it. Absolutely.
0: How was that? Was that helpful to write it all down?
2: Yeah, so when COVID hit in 2020 was the best time to be able to sit down and write it. I I always figured and uh, a girlfriend of mine always said, you know, you need to write a a story, you need to write write a book and I thought, yeah, one day I will. And uh, COVID gave me the time and space to do that and I found it really hard reliving, very emotional reliving but I found it very therapeutic. Through adversity and through my life, as I said to you, I wouldn't be the person, good or bad, without my dad or even my mum. I wouldn't be the person I am today. They've taught me how to and not to be. And uh, I'm very, very happy in a very loving marriage. And uh, I've got a, a terrifically supportive husband who's kept me sane and alive because there were some dark moments there. I managed to avoid losing my life even though I'd tried to take it a couple of times. I'm older and wiser. I did 18 years in aged care and then I went into my own business for seven years but recently I've just started in disability support.
0: It sounds like you've just You're living a very different life to your dad's.
2: Yeah, well, my life is more focused on people. My dad's life was focused on himself. And I'm living a good life.
0: Thank you to our guest today, Lisa. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact one respect on one 737 732 or one respectorgau Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp.